Hey guys, if you dig this content and want more stories, go ahead and head on over to humbledpodcast.com slash donate. That's H-U-M-B-L-E-D podcast.com slash donate and show us some love. We appreciate you. Welcome to Humbled, a podcast about athlete transitions. I'm Kristen Harold's daughter, former rower, coach, and PhD in exercise physiology. And I'm Erin Gaffaro, former two-time Olympic gold medalist in rowing. On the Humbled podcast, we have conversations with former athletes or professionals in the athletic world about the often difficult and isolating period of athlete transition. And instead of talking about their tips and tricks to get to the top of the podium, We are normalizing the conversation about what it was like to leave their sport, start the next challenge, and how their experience as a competitive athlete shaped their life beyond sport. Also, just as a heads up, this is the second to last episode of the first season of Humbled. Today on Humbled, we interviewed someone very near and dear to my heart, Karen Kraft Rigsby. I met Karen when I moved to Madison, Wisconsin in 2012 to be a graduate assistant for the University of Wisconsin women's rowing team. I started graduate school there studying exercise physiology. I had heard rumors of Karen Kraft, the two-time Olympic medalist who was this elusive rowing badass who paved her own way to the national team in the 1990s. And I knew she was on the Wisconsin coaching staff and I was so intimidated by just the idea of her rowing resume that I was essentially speechless whenever I was near her my first few weeks at the boathouse. Yeah, Karen was infamous on the national team for her badassery and an idol for the small undersized rowers like me trying to make it in the world of the Giants. So it was so humbling to get to hear her story firsthand. And this is a story that really needs to be heard. Karen's incredibly unusual road not only to the podium of one Olympics, But then recovery from cancer and back on the podium for a second Olympics in 2000 is absolutely unreal. Buckle up. There's very little chance that you've heard a story like this one. So get ready to be awed and inspired to hear Karen Kraft Rigsby tell her story on Humbled. I was the oldest of four kids when I went to high school. And my um, parents were very encouraging of academics. So like that was a focus. And we were also um, not really encouraged to do sports so much after school because we had jobs. So I had a paper route. And so I didn't, you know, we didn't have the opportunity really to try out for sports because I had to come home and do my paper route. And that was, I wouldn't say mandatory, but it was definitely a high priority in high school. Like you get good grades, you save up your money so you can go to college, especially when there's four kids. Like it's not a, um, it's not a given. And so I was going to study architecture and um, design, and I was going to graduate with that degree is a five-year degree, and I wanted to get it done in four just because um, that's what you do when you're gear and craft. And um, yep. I also wanted just to become more athletic. And so I thought, well, I can try out for some sports um, because I know it's not, you know, it's not like a, a Big Ten school or – uh, super successful school. It's an academic, um, 
focused in a, a very conservative campus. So I tried out for the track team and the cross country team and the volleyball team and the swimming team and the basketball team. And mm. <laughs> so over the course of two years, four semesters, I tried out for like eight teams and all the coaches of course were like, what the, what are you doing? You're, there's no skill you possess. You have no ball handling <laughs> skills. You have no um, speed. You have no agility. You have no muscle mass. You have you have nothing except maybe a, a little grit to try for this. And the the cross country coach said, you know, you you could potentially train on your own and redshirt possibly next year. And I ran with this group and they were awesome and super friendly. And they said they were the crew team, which I had no idea what that meant, but they invited me to their practice, which was on Saturday mornings. And it took me a while to, to show up just because I was an architecture student and Saturday mornings was a big project morning. And I finally showed up um, to a Saturday morning, maybe a month later, and uh, I was just going to ride in the launch and watch. I didn't know what that meant, but that's what they told me I was going to do. But they were one person short, so they threw me in bow seat, and uh, I took some strokes, and I loved it. But I started rowing twice a week that um, year. Spring semester, I wasn't able to do it, um, but my senior year, I quit my job that was in the morning and was able to row the whole year and compete. And I use the word compete loosely because- What year was this? 91. Okay. 90 and 91. So after I finished my college career, I decided I was going to keep going. And I had been kind of quasi invited to a development camp where there were mostly high school students and just a few college freshmen. So I was the grandmother of the group. Um, it was going to be a two month camp in Cincinnati. And I just thought, you know, I'm just going to see where this goes. And that kind of started, that launched me into the next, I guess, um, the next step of the journey was that camp because that that changed the course of where my life was headed at that time. Right. So after you, this was right after you graduated. Correct. And right. instead of pursuing a job in architecture, you went to a high school camp in Cincinnati. Did I get that right? <laughs> That's right. And then what did you do? Uh, I was able to drop my score on the ERG pretty precipitously there. Um, over two months just because I got some actual real coaching and I was training every day, twice a day. Um, so Dave Reichman took me aside after camp and said, I don't know what your plans are. I know um, that you're kind of on a di different trajectory than everyone else in this camp because everyone else is going back to college or going back to high school <laughs> and, <laughs> and they're going to, you know, continue rowing um, in their, in their arena where your arena is kind of, you know, it's up to you now, whether you're going to go work on, I had a job offer at the time um, to work as a junior draftsman in an architecture firm. And if I were to decide to do that, um, that was, that was going to be the course of my life. I couldn't do both. Like I mentioned earlier, I'm not someone that can really embrace two things and do both well. I, my brain isn't wired that way. And I just get too, um, I would get, it, I need to be polarized. <laughs> so, um, he said, and he may have said this to everyone at the camp, 
but for some reason it really got traction in me. And he said, whatever you choose to do, if you choose to take this sport to the next level, I'm certain that you can take it as far as you want from what I've seen in the last two months. So whatever that means to you, take it for what it's worth. But I don't say it lightly. And what I've seen you do here, I think you can go on to do whatever you want with the sport. And that means, so this was in 1991. Um, he's like, I'm not saying you can make the Olympics in 92, but it's a p possibility for you in the future. And like that, when he threw that word out there, I was like, what? Because this paradigm had a hot, you know, it had been slowly shifting, but still had never really opened up to that whole world. And, um, and I just kind of held on to that with both hands and I put my degree in a drawer and just started training twice a day. And he wrote me just like this mini training program to kind of launch this endeavor. Um, and I went back to California, which is where I was going to start a job. And I got a waitressing job instead so that I could train twice a day. And, um, that's when it started. So you were training alone. Yes. On an erg. Yes. Not on the water. Correct. Waitressing. Yes. No teammates. No. No direct coach. No. Just like a training program that he wrote out for you. Uh, so there was, it was a training program for the erg, but I couldn't get on an erg every day. I was at Stanford and, um, I could only get on the erg, um, occasionally if there was no, if there weren't any actual rowers for Stanford on the erg, cause yeah. it was in the, like a main gym. And so when I could work out, it was sometimes, you know, there were already two athletes on those two ergs. So I would do, I would run stadiums at Stanford. I would run a similar concept of Cal Poly. I would run laps around the campus. Right. Um, I did some weightlifting, but I hadn't really been coached in weightlifting. So I had more of a um, random whatever I could do in the time. So the training program was like, when you do get to erg, here's what you should work on for your 6K. Got it. And so that's what I did. Um, so I want to fast forward a bit. Okay. You somehow got paired up with Missy. Mm -hmm. When did that happen? Uh, that it was, so I moved to Chattanooga and there was a selection camp, which is, you know, that wide casting net that yeah. grabbed some college students. And Missy came up through that. She was a college grad and showed up in a selection camp and she was similar build to me. And so, um, she got thrown into a seat race and she sat right behind me, um, in the eight for her seat race. And she won every race that he switched her in and out of. Um, and he kept her in the back half of the boat and I was, that's where I was. And so I, she kept switching in and out of my boat and every time she won. And so I, I remembered exactly what it felt like to not have anyone turn around and say anything and trying to be figure out like, you know, so I turned around to her and said, that was an awesome race. You've run every piece from what I can tell. Nice and she's you. like, I know. <laughs> so <Awesome. laughs> I was like, all right, this girl's cool and, um, badass. And then he threw us. So she got to stay and he threw us in the pair, um, shortly after that. So that is 94. And we went to world championships, which were in the States that year as the spare pair. So that was your first competition. Um, that was, yeah. So we were just the spare and, um, 
we didn't get to race, obviously, because nothing went wrong. Right. But it was the, you know, we were at the world championship, even though it was in Indianapolis. Right. Okay. Okay. And then you ended up becoming the pair for the 96 Olympics. Yes. So 95, we were still in the pair and he didn't really coach us that much. Um, he just kind of gave us a workout and would focus his attention on the eight. And we would either kind of be behind the eight in their wake, or we would go the opposite way on the river and just do our workout. Um, but we were matched in personality really well and in, and in skill set. Um, she was much more technically coached than I was through college. And so she had, um, she was bow, which was helpful. And I was stroke and we just kind of figured it out. Um, in the pair, if you don't figure it out, you either get wet or you go to shore or. (laughs) Yeah. So you went to the Olympics in 96. Yes. Uh, just maybe describe that. Uh, so we, I'll start with, a um, the. Olympic trials were in June and we had been, we had left after 95. So we went to world championships in 95 in Finland and we got a silver medal there. That was our first international race. And Hartmut pulled the both boats, the pair and the eight um, into this little conference room at the hotel in Finland and said, this is a great place to launch our endeavor for 96 next year um, will be in the States for the Olympics. We have a gold medal eight because they had won the gold medal that year. And we have a silver medal pair, which is quite obvious to me that what I need to do is take two people out of the eight and double them up. So we'll have a gold medal pair and a gold medal eight. So Missy and I were kind of sitting there in shock. Like, so we just won our first international race, won a silver medal rather, and we're out. So we asked him afterwards and he said, I have no need for a silver medal player when I've got eight gold medal athletes right here and I can double up next year. So we left and trained for a coach in Australia um, who was a very um, short man, but a very good rower. He had been an athlete, um, a lightweight rower, but was very technical because he himself had learned how to, you know, kind of get around the size advantage of rowing and, and just be a little more, as he said, cheeky (laughs) with his technique. And so we changed our technique a little bit. Um, well, we actually got technique, let's be real. Um, and we came back to the States for the 96 Olympic trials and had to beat all four pairs from the eight. So it was, um, we had heats to get down to six boats because it was us, the four pairs from the eight, and then some other you know, renegade pairs. And we got down to six boats and then we had a semifinal. Um, or yeah, we had, we had five races in five days and the last two races were the final. We had to win two out of three. So we won the first final by 11 seconds against the four women with the eight, um, pairs, four pairs from the eight. And then we, the second race, we had to win two and we run the second race by 13 seconds. No way. Which in a pair race is kind of a time zone. Like did between. you look at him? We did, but he wouldn't look at us and wouldn't talk to us. And that was fine with us. It was just enough satisfaction to win that by that much margin. And they were very overtrained at the time. And we had been um, just really smart to leave. 
You so, had raced or you had trained for it. Yes. Yeah. That's awesome. Yes. So you got your bid. So we got our bid and we stayed stateside. We moved down to Atlanta. Um, and at the time we had raced the top pairs in the United States. They had been in Australia when we were there. So we were pretty confident that we would um, medal uh, and we were undefeated in the Australian circuit. So that's awesome. Um, that's incredible. We uh, went into the Olympics um, kind of as an underdog in terms of what the U.S. saw because they didn't know our story and they knew that we weren't supported by the U- USOC at that time. And, How were you supporting yourselves? Uh, debt. <laughs> really? Yeah. yeah. Um, no sponsors, no. No sponsors, no. Nothing. Um, and our coach at the time had totally, you know, helped us out pro bono. And he um, had coached us that entire, like, six months that we were in Australia, came back to the States to coach us for trials. And um, so we wanted him as our coach for the Olympics. Of course. And there was a little um, political game we had to play to get that to happen, but he was able to to stay sure. and be our coach. And we went into the finals, um, making our way through all the the races at the um, Olympics. At the Olympics, having gone to the opening ceremonies, which was the night before our heat. Okay. But Dickie, in his wisdom, had trained us for that as well. We had done a lot of um, hikes and just long walks and runs prior to like heavy racing days. So that you could make it to so, the ceremony. So that That's we could so make cool. it to the ceremony. So just a lot of foresight and thoughtfulness in his training. Um, so we we're able to participate in that, which is so awesome in the States because you're hearing your, you're at your first Olympics and you're hearing the Star Spangled Banner and the, the songs that you yeah. knew um, and recognized in language, no language barriers. And um, my personal sports hero, um, Muhammad Ali, was the one that lit the torch. So that was just one of the most moving moments. I remember more of that than I do of our race. But um, That's interesting. Then we lined up for our final, and we were down for the first half of the race to three boats, and then we took our move and just kind of picked off the number three boat and the number two boat, and then it was us against the Australians, who we had raced five or six times in the previous six months and had had always been close, but we were had always been able to kind of pull it out in the last 500 meters, and we weren't able to pull it out um, it was bow ball to bow ball, stroke to stroke for 20 strokes when we were in the red buoys those last 250 meters. Um, and it just it depended on whose oars were in the water, which bow ball was surging ahead. And they had their oars in the water that last. And we were moving on them um, each time, but their, um, their stroke rate and their technique was just able to hold us off until we crossed the lines. And then we, you know, our momentum was greater. So when we f- flew our blades and took them off the water, we passed them, but it had been, was past the the bubble line. So we got a silver medal by three tenths of a second. It was a photo finish for the crowd. And that was the first race my parents saw. You finished that Olympics. Did you, were you done? I thought at that point we were. You thought you were re- retired? Yes. From rowing? Yes. And you, um, what, what did you do right away? So you finished, you're in Atlanta. Yep. And I moved back to um, California where um, I was going to go to grad school and figure out where that was going to happen. I'd taken some 
courses at Stanford to prepare for that. Grad school in what? Uh, exercise physiology. Cool. It was just um, so interesting to me to train and to be on that journey that it was something I wanted to delve into more. Yeah. And Missy was also going to be in the area because her husband um, was going to be at Stanford in grad school. So it wasn't to go there um, to be in close proximity to her, but it was just familiar and I was going to figure out what the next chapter of my life was going to look like because I had no foresight of what that was going to be other than I wanted to, I needed to go to school first. And, um, and also what we had learned while we were training for the Olympic trials was that Missy's brother was going to need a kidney and she was a perfect match. So she was going to donate a kidney. That was the other kind of, um, period at the end of the sentence, knowing that we were going to be done or at the time thinking that. And when did you start getting sick? I didn't know that I was um, sick at the time until I had just a general checkup um, and found out through follow-up that I had cervical cancer and it was um, stage two and would need radiation and chemo um, that year. So before the end of the year. Before the end of 96? Yes. So you spent how long doing chemo and radiation? It was three months. I have two. I had two cycles of um, chemo and uh, one pretty heavy hit of radiation. And again, this was 96. So cancer treatment had come a long way since then. And at the time, it wasn't so... Um, focus the radiation. So it kind of, they kind of splatter you with it. Um, and did you have health insurance? No, we didn't. You didn't have any insurance. Did you have any insurance actually throughout any of your training? I did have insurance covered through the USOC when we were supported by the USOC. So that would be after Olympic trials in 96. And then throughout the second quadrennium, um, starting in 98, we were supported by the USOC. So you as an Olympic athlete have um, catastrophic coverage through the USOC. Okay. But right after 96, we weren't training. I did not have coverage. So when you had cancer? Yes. And had two rounds of radiation and chemo. I did not have any health insurance because... It was just an extra expense that when you're trying to pay down a lot of debt, you just, I was young and like cocky enough at the time that I thought, well, health insurance is for sick people and health insurance is for old people and I'm neither. So um, I'm willing to take that calculated risk. But when I first got the diagnosis, um, I still had no idea how expensive that kind of care would be yeah. in California in, you know, mid nineties. And it was six digits of debt by the time I was finished. Wow. And, um, I mean, you, you can get loans to pay that off and you can get, you know, you can file for certain kinds of bankruptcy. Um, but I was really resistant to doing that and just wanted to pay down as much as I could. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of the next journey that I set on after I got well. And it was, it was a short time, I think partly because, um, I had really great medical care. 
Um, and also I just come off of winning a silver medal at the Olympics. So I was like, Oh hell no, I'm not going out like that. And it just wasn't even something that, um, rocked my world. It was just like an inconvenience is how I thought of it. And, you know, fast forward later when a similar thing happened, I was a little more shaken, but because I had that first experience still coming off the Olympics, I was like, Nope, I've done this before. I can get through it again. So just to dive into that a little bit, you, this was the end of 96 calendar year and beginning of 97. Correct. That you were going through cancer treatment. Were you thinking at all? So at this point in your mind, you were retired? Yes. And if you hadn't gotten a cancer diagnosis, what was, what were you thinking about doing next? Uh, I was applying to grad schools, um, I was. I still needed to get some of the scientific undergraduate work done because I didn't have a whole lot of um, biology in my architecture degree. So I needed to catch up on that, bone up on some A and P and other undergraduate coursework. Yeah. So I was. My plan was to do that until I got those prerequisites out of the way, and then launch into a graduate school, um, which I hadn't decided where that would be yet. Yeah. And then I got the diagnosis. Yeah, that's uh, that's similar stuff I had to do actually because I had an art and archaeology degree. <laughs> so going to grad school in uh, exercise physiology is is surprisingly enough not related. No, at all. organic chemistry and just a foreign language to the yeah the design degree. Yes, <laughs> yeah, but it's all just hard work. So it's you're you were. Um, no stranger to it. Okay, so you did that. You went through treatment. How did that change your outlook on what was next? It just delayed it, really. Um, I don't think I ever really thought it was going to change my life that that much. And that was naivete, and it was a little bit of stubbornness, but also I think it saved me from um, just collapsing into a heap of self-pity at that point. Right. And... I think it's a very viable option when you hear that and you've, you know, I've, re- I've read and I've, I've read about and I've met people who either know or have lost someone um, with stage two. Yeah. And um, I just feel like, again, I, I dodged a bullet. <laughs> um, and you were probably at the peak of your physical health with the exception of having cancer cells in your body though, right? Having trained your body, your physical body so well. I think that the, I don't know how long it had been going on. Um, Perhaps we would have caught it earlier if I wasn't kind of too busy training. Maybe you would have gotten a gold. (laughs) Maybe. Um, That's a horrible (laughs) thing to say. Those three tenths of a second, damn cervical cancer. (laughs) Uh, But I, I also think that, um, had it happened at any other time, like had it, had I been diagnosed before, like somewhere in the training, that would have completely changed my training. Right. So, um, and the end result, I'm sure, I think I, it would have shaken me a lot more. But because we had finished that quadrennium, um, we had a nearly perfect um, ending to that. I was like, oh, no, that's not how I'm going out. Yeah. And... It didn't really shake me. I don't have a lot of like scary memories that time around. 
going through the treatment. It was just kind of a hassle and inconvenient and scary more in the terms of how much debt I was accruing each time I had to go through. Did you think about that? Did you, were you thinking about the debt? I wasn't like keeping track of it because there's nothing I could do with it at the time. I just knew it was piling quickly in zeros. And, um, it was kind of a, one of those things, if you don't look at it too hard, maybe it just won't be as bad. (laughs) So I Did you have support during this? Like you didn't really lean on people very much when you were training and that was a battle and this was a cancer battle. Did you lean on people then? I didn't because I didn't want, um, I don't think I even told my parents I was going through it until I was done with it. And that was not, that did not go over well (laughs) because of course they would have supported me through that. But at the time, um, my, they had moved uh, out of California and they were up in the Pacific Northwest and my younger brother and sister were in high school and, um, you know, that was, I just didn't want to create this drama and I didn't think it was going to be drama. It wasn't drama to me and I didn't want it to be drama for them and I think it would have been. And so I just didn't tell them. Now we're in 97. Yes. And what are you doing? I am taking classes. Um, got a full bill, a clean bill of health. I'm in the Bay Area going to um, Stanford for two classes. And Missy and her husband are basically less than a mile away from where I live, but we hadn't seen each other. So she was on the operating table a month after our final race at the Olympics, and she donated her kidney to her brother. And we didn't, when we knew that, we figured, well, we were done anyway. It was um, uh, a good haul, a frustrating haul, nearly perfect ending, Um, it had been an intense four years and without any malice between us, we just hadn't talked in the, in a year. Um, I didn't tell her about the cervical cancer until, you know, we are until our first cancer, even though she was very close proximately and she would have been there in a heartbeat to take me to and from treatments. Yeah. But, um, I've heard that from other Olympians. It's such an intense experience when you walk away. It's like you have to start fresh. Like, I don't know what it is, but I've heard that from other people. And you don't want to get back on the rowing machine. You don't want to see numbers that are so far off what you did before. And, um, and she was, she was still really, um, fit, but she knew, you know, after, well, you back up. So she was on the operating table, donated a kidney. And because the kidney's partly, um, responsible for, processing metabolic waste. Like yeah. you don't know how that's going to affect someone that trains 40 hours a week. Yeah. And um, the kidney also grows in response to muscle mass growth. So her kidney was much larger than the doctors anticipated oh, when they went wild. in to take it out because she was so um, muscle bound, you know, for her stature, she was five, eight, five, eight and a half. Sorry, I'm going to see five, nine, five, nine. We'll go with five, nine. And um, she had a kidney that was the size of a 200 pound man. Like, like a linebacker's had to, like, kidney. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. So um, she had a long um, scar that wrapped around her oh, side. And that was a long recovery. But, um, you know, she was going to be active again. She was going to train a crazy again. story in and of itself. Going to have to jump down that hole too. <laughs> Not today. <laughs> 
So then it was um, August of 97 and um, rowing races are never broadcast on ESPN. They're always like yeah. ESPN two or seven or 11 at 2 AM in the morning. They make it to NBC now for like 10 minutes, which is huge actually. Uh, and neither one of us had talked about this, but separately we had each watched, um, the world championships, uh, in our own home. Mm-hmm. And the next day after that, um, I got a phone call from her and she's like, Crafty. And I hadn't, you know. Which had, was your nickname. Which was my nickname. You were Karen Craft. And um, she said, did you watch it? And I knew exactly what she was talking about because I had. And I said, yes. And unfortunately, the women's pair that year hadn't done very well. And the women's eight hadn't done very well either. Same and, women as before? Um, some of them. Okay. Um, many after 96 had left. Okay. Um, and we did not know the women in the pair, <clears throat> but it was still Hartmut that was coaching them. And there was it was a poor performance that year at World Championships. Mm-hmm. And so she said, did you watch it? And I said, yes. She said, what do you think? And I knew she wasn't looking for my analysis of the race or the rowing technique. Yeah. I just said, yep. And she said, do you know what I'm asking? And I said, yep. <laughs> and she said, um, when? And I said, as soon as possible. And then we met. I mean, it was all, it was like we were talking in code, but we spent so much time together. Like we knew yeah. how, yeah. I just what got we were chills. Ta- we're talking about. Um, and I think we met that week for coffee and like, what would this look like right now? Cause she was married and her husband was in grad school at Stanford and I hadn't started grad school yet. So it was much easier for me to pick up root yeah. and move. And they were thinking about moving to Texas and that's what we ended up doing. And we you started to Texas. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. We were there, um, in 97 cause Tim, her husband, who was also, um, uh, an elite rower, he was, uh, had finished grad school and got recruited by a hedge fund company that was based in Dallas. Wow. So uh, it was Dallas, a great opportunity okay. and we moved there um, and trained full time in a bubble, really, like no fast people were there. We raced men, like boys quads, high school boys quads. Yeah, I don't know of any, I didn't know no, there was much rowing. It was there. not a great training um, venue for us, but it at least launched us on the path yeah. and it got us started and it, it brought us together again to start training. Yeah. We trained in singles. Um, Missy was way better at the single than I was. I kind of went in circles and never got <laughs> that straightened out. Uh, we you were switched, a port, right? I was a port. Yeah. Um, we switched seats in the pair. So she stroked for a while and I was bow just to sh- change it up. Yeah. Did a lot of work on the erg, listening to NPR and, I love um, doing that. That is so messed up. It's really messed up that <laughs> people is. do that. <laughs> uh, but we knew what kind of training we needed to do to get back on, in shape. And because we were training really with nobody pushing us, we didn't have a coach other than, you know, someone giving us workouts. You were just building an aerobic base. Building it back, yeah. yeah. So we did not make the team in Did she know you'd been through cancer? Did I don't think her? she knew right away. I think she, I think we talked about it within that year, but I don't remember. Um, she knew me well enough to know that why I did it or yeah. just like 
yep, that figures that you would do something like that. Yeah. Um, and chastised me appropriately, but we moved on as we always do. So the things I think about with myself, even though I did, I never made it nearly as far as you. And just thinking about, you know, there's something from 1991 to 2000 that you chose to be an athlete. Like that was, there was no external pressure on you. There was no external reward. There was no financial reward. There was no notoriety. There was nothing. What did it, like, what did it mean to you to be an athlete? Or what was that, like, I guess kind of describe to me, if you can, what, what it was that you got from doing that, that you didn't from going out and working, you know, what, 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 what did it mean to you? I, um, it's kind of a mercurial concept for me. And I, I have thought about it since, because once you're no longer at that level of an athlete, you try to redefine your identity and you can't quite put your finger on what it is, um, that, that stirs you so much. And so what I've come up with in looking back in those, on those nine years, basically, and how I found it in the first place was the ability or what I get from it, I guess, is the knowledge, the internal knowledge, intrinsic knowledge that um, once I decide I'm going to do something, I know that I understand the process of how to do it. And I don't necessarily know the time it's going to take, but I know the process of setting small goals achieving those small goals, getting closer, using that momentum to ride when I dip a little bit in terms of motivation or inspiration. And then using those, that momentum again to look up and see the next small goal. And every once in a while, looking all the way up to see the big goal out there, but not fixating on that so much and looking down at the work that I have each, you know, either each day or take the, in whatever chunk you want. So whether that's, uh, I'm not going to use grad school because I actually didn't complete that, but um, <laughs> whether that's, that's story. <laughs> um, a small project or making the Olympics, it's a matter of not just focusing on the end because that can be completely daunting or demoralizing when it feels like you make one mistake and your path is gone, Yeah, but it's building the path stone by stone and... I think I like that masonry work of just building the path. You like the work. Yeah. I think that's what I keep coming back to because if in a day, if I have absolutely nothing to do, um, that is not a good day for me. Yeah. I want a job. I'm kind of like a border collie. (laughs) I just, I need a job, even if it's a small job, but I need to have that sense of accomplishment. And I don't know what that is in my personality or wired in my DNA, but I think that's what, makes me happy. Yeah. So I, I think, think that's the bottom line. Yeah. I, I love that. Do you think that there's something that, um, you're, you know, I know you and we have more to get to. Um, but is there, is there a part of it that, um, the physical feedback, cause this is a concept that I'm, I'm starting to get really interested in is that we as athletes, you know, we like the work. We like the work. Otherwise, you wouldn't keep coming back. You have to like it enough because there isn't enough of a reward. Mm-hmm. 
They're just it or external reward, I would, I should say. Mm-hmm. And do you think that there's that, and you, I know you're a math person too, right? Mm-hmm. Like, do you think that there's, um, you have, you get all this physical feedback, you do all this training, you have all this data and a lot of the data you'll never be able to describe to anyone. You'll be able to say, this is how I felt during this workout. And I know that last time I felt this way during a workout, I then did well, or then I did poorly, you know, mm-hmm. and you're able to like that physical feedback that you can barely put into words, could not really be measured by anyone else that guides you. Is that, like, does that resonate with you? It does. That's a really good point. I think, especially because you spend so many hours staring at, for me, the ERG, um, for so many hours without water time. Uh, And water time was different just because you don't have that numeric number. But because I am a math person, I think that was good for me because you're in constant state of analysis and um, processing what that split felt like, what that split felt like. (laughs) And now I can memorize, I know what it feels like if I sit on the erg right now, my numbers are way skewed left from what they used to be or down (laughs) or left and down, (laughs) but, um, or up in this case up. Yes. Uh, I think I could sit on the erg and I could pull three strokes and tell you the three splits that I, yeah. you know, and, and so you do know what your performance feels like and it's almost, a, um, an addiction to what the work feels like physically in your yeah. body. It's, there's really no, there's no comparison in work that's non-physical. I right. I, I absolutely agree. Yeah. And whether it's like, you know, transmitters or, like endorphins or whatever things are floating around, giving your brain this feedback from the metabolic work. It's something that resonates in your actual physiological body that you derive pleasure from. And then you get, you just kind of get sucked into that sensation of doing work. Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it, but it's, uh, um, I love it. Yeah, I do too. And I think now, even when I'm, I'm not an athlete, but I still like to stay active. So I'll sit on the erg for 15 minutes. Um, But it's like a methadone treatment for the, (laughs) the addict in me. I don't know. It's a lullaby in the way that my body's like, okay, that was good. Well, so Aaron's husband, Brian, he, I guess, I think he has this theory that all elite athletes are addicts. I would agree with that. Yeah. I absolutely would agree with that. So you then, you and Missy are in Texas, you're, you're training. I don't know if you really want to talk too much about getting to the 2000 Olympics and, and yeah, it's kind of similar story. It's different vibe. A very different vibe going into 2000. It was, um, way less piss and vinegar. <laughs> I mean, we were just wanting to prove Hartmut wrong yeah. when, once we left camp. And in 2000, it was just about trying to find the training that would give us a better race rather than a race that we would just second guess. Yeah. 
Yeah, I love that. So did you, you didn't train under him again, right? We didn't. We trained in Princeton, but the men's camp was there because Hartmut would not invite us to the women's camp, which at the time was in San Diego. And um, so we trained with the men uh, against their single, which was somewhat a comparable pace sure. for us. Yeah. Um, and that way we just had eyes on us on the water yeah. and a training program mm-hmm. that we knew was successful. So uh, we trained with Mike Porterfield there and every once in a while Dickie would weigh in on from Australia, from Australia. <laughs> there was no um, FaceTime back then. No, no FaceTime, but um, he would want to know what we're doing, what kind of training we're doing, you know, what's our focus technical, technically yeah. and Snail how we were getting along. Phone calls? <laughs> uh, usually emails. Oh, emails. Yeah. This is 2000. It wasn't or totally 99. the stone age. Yeah. <laughs> we're pretty close. AOL. <laughs> AIM. So you kind of transitioned out once and then you uh, went through a cancer battle and then you and Missy both kind of at the same time were on the same page about wanting to get back into it. This time you retired for good, but still experienced some pretty wild complications. Yes. So I came back from 2000 um, having uh, studied for the GRE um, while I was at Sydney, actually, in between training sessions. Of course and I uh, took the GRE in August when I got back and uh, applied to grad school with the intent of starting hopefully in January. And I uh, had moved home to Washington with to, to live with my parents until I had figured out where I was going to go to school. And this time while I was um, home, I had some um, pain in my abdomen, but it wasn't, I just thought it was, um, sim- it was similar to menstrual cramps, but I didn't really have a menstrual cycle at the time because of training and, and that, um, the amenorrhea, amenorrhea that kind of sets in when you're, you don't really have that much, um, body fat to, to feed the estrogen. So, I um, I just thought that since training was over, like my body was like, oh, okay, now we know what to do. And it was just the beginning of menstrual cycle, figuring itself out. And um, in the meantime, I got accepted at University of Wisconsin. So I moved out here in January. And during to- this time, just as sorry, I don't mean to interrupt, but during this time, like you had transitioned out of rowing and how did you feel about your trip? Like were you... What were you looking forward to? What were you looking back? You know, like how did this feel? It felt similar to 97 um, once I, shortly after 96 was my cancer diagnosis. And then I got out of that and it, so I was inactive for several months and then I just wanted to get in shape again. So that was a different transition because something forced my hand at not working out. Yeah. In 2000, I really had to figure out how to structure a day without four hours of working out. So after doing that, um, for nine years, you figure out, okay, I don't need that. I'm not training for anything in particular, but you don't know how, how do you only work out for 30 minutes? That's like a, that's like a warm up, And it's only one piece when you're used to doing three and then you got to come back and do something else in the afternoon. Yeah. And I really struggle with that. And I think that's why I agree with Brian's assessment that all athletes are on some level an addict or there's that need to feed 
yeah. whatever it was that their practice fed for them, their yeah. work. So that was uh, tough. I remember just sometimes going for two runs in a day at my parents' house, and they're just like, Karen, stop. This is obsessive. And it yeah. was, but yeah. I didn't know any other way, and I just had to basically kind of wean myself off of that. Um, and sometimes it was, you know, just weather because it was Eastern Washington. So that would keep me from working out. Um, but then I moved to Wisconsin and, uh, had a couple months before school was to start and got insurance, which was finally smart of me. Um, but I was still having these abdomen pains. So I went to my primary doctor and she sent me right away to an oncologist at the Carboni Center and um, they diagnosed me with um, ovarian cancer. So that diagnosis, like I said earlier, kind of rocked me a little bit more because it's like, wait, this is the second time I've had cancer. And my first dad, my biological dad died of cancer um, in his thirties. When you were four? When I was four. And so, um, this one was like, this is a whole different primary cancer. It's not like it, they didn't catch it and it moved. This was a different, um, st stage. It wasn't as advanced, but it was still going to require one, they thought one round of radiation and, um, most likely chemo after that, which has ended up it was one round of each that time, okay. but I was a little more, um, scared and not pity, uh, ridden yet, but like, what the F? Yeah. <laughs> why, why is this happening? And why does it always happen the year after the Olympics? Like yeah. did training for the Olympics give me cancer? <laughs> um, it's not funny. It's not funny, but on some level, I think that the um, the training ne didn't necessarily didn't cause it. I think you have that what pathology, if you will. But um, the fact that I didn't get normal checkups with my doctor during those years of training, you just don't have time for that kind of stuff. Yeah. And so those things that might have been caught earlier, they I just didn't. But it still would have been cancer. It still would have, but it perhaps it would have been caught. Um, with a different treatment protocol yeah. rather than having to do both. Yeah, um, right. But I was fortunate enough this time to have insurance, to have, to be at UW. So yeah. first time I was at Stanford, <laughs> can't go wrong there. And at UW and I had great care and it was knocked out in, in one of each, both radiation and chemo. Um, but what they told me um, was that the chances of have, after having radiation and chemo on both my uterus and my ovary that I probably wouldn't be able to bear a child. At the time, I was like, okay, well, I'm not married. I don't have, um, that's always been kind of like a long-term thing. But it wasn't really heartbreaking because I hadn't had, we weren't trying. Like I didn't, we, there was no we. <laughs> it yeah. was just me. So, yeah. um, and I was going to grad school and I was like, okay, well, if I decide I want a kid, I can try. And then if I can, I can adopt. Yeah. No big deal. Mm -hmm. um, but in terms of like life, I was like, man, I need to, I really need to take care of myself. You were like 30. So I was 31. 31, yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
that was about three months. So I delayed my um, grad school again and then started in the summer of 2001. And you were living in Madison working as a waitress? Working as a waitress at, at, uh, at Blue Fees and yeah. at El Dorado. And, um, Which is where you started meeting some yoga people? Yes. Right? Yep. Uh, I worked at El Dorado where Justin Rivas worked, and um, he actually was teaching yoga at the time. I was going through teacher training also. So hold on. I actually do want to pursue this a little bit because I'm so interested in this transition. You ended a nine-year intense, like singular rowing career. Um pursued, you went to grad school or like pursued grad school. You moved to Wisconsin for it, went through cancer treatment. What were you like, where did yoga fit in? Where did the transition from, or was it a transition or was it just a, you know, substitute? Like where does, where does crazy Karen running twice a day, training four hours a day, transition to um, I know the story is so hard to really nail down, but like, can you just put the pieces together? Maybe if you, if there, if there is an order, um, I can't, it was not really linear. Yeah. So I'm going to jump around a little bit, but when I started grad school and was working, um, at, so I'm trying to pay off a lot of debt while accumulating more debt. <laughs> probably six figures plus now. It was over a, half a million in debt. God. And so um, some of it was medical debt from my previous. Some of it was undergrad debt that I deferred while I was training for the Olympics and then deferred again while I was yeah. training for the Olympics. So the inc- interest rate had pretty much doubled on that. And then s- most of it, well, not most of it, most of it was medical debt. And the other part of that chunk was the debt that I had accrued training because yeah. Missy and I were able to work the second quadrennium for Home Depot, which sponsored us with a full paycheck, even though we only worked part-time. So we nice. were 20 hours a week. They paid us for 40, nice. which was very generous and very helpful in mitigating that debt. But we still accumulated some. Yeah. Uh, so I was working full-time and also working in a lab at UW. Right. And I just didn't have have time to work out. Like I just, I had to let that go. Um, I would still work out, but I didn't have the four hours that I was trying to scrounge up and find. And so I was able to just kind of uncurl my fingers from that paradigm and just work out half hour, maybe an hour. And I mostly ran. Sometimes I would erg if I had access to one. Um, And I wrapped my head around that. That was okay. Yeah. And because I still, I think, felt fit unless I sat on the erg and tried to pull previous numbers. But so that was, that was the first step, I guess, transitioning out of the craziness and the obsessiveness. But um, the yoga part came in because I was going to study biomechanics and um, how anatomy and physiology come together in biomechanics and like what it is in the body that allows some people to be really, um, fast recoverers, some people that have fast twitch. Missy and I were wildly different in our physiology, um, which was really intriguing to me. So I wanted to study all that yeah. in exercise phys, but I also wanted to study like just angles. Um, cause I am a math nerd and 
the angles of rowing and yeah. where you sit with the pin, how you. It still needs advancement. It Some does. There's many biomechan- me, biomechanists that study rowing, but there's all different theories. Yeah. yeah. So that was what um, kind of launched me in that direction. But what I thought, because I had this architectural background, was to study the architecture of the body and how that um, creates balance. And so I had taken a yoga class, I don't even remember when, somewhere in the 90s when I was in at Stanford. And I really liked it. It was the hot yoga. But I never went back just because it was expensive and it was just yeah. one more way to incur debt. Yeah. And so I found out that a hot yoga studio was opening in Madison. So I went to their like open house that first week. And it was so um, exhausting and so hard and so much work that I fell in love with it for the same reason I fell in love with rowing. And I thought, well, this is a great way to study the body and um, the muscles in the body as they hold the architecture of these poses kind of out of the lab. And so it became an academic exercise, but I also really liked the physical work of it and the sweat and the endorphins that I got were very similar to the ones I got running. And so then I just started practicing and yeah. that would be that w- became my obsession. That became like what I transferred that thing to. And I couldn't do it every day, but when I did do it, um, I got that same feeling of my day is done. Yeah. I, I've done my yoga. Yeah. Or I've done my work. Yeah. Then I became interested in teacher training. So I did kind of an indentured servanthood with Marit, the owner of the studio yeah. that had opened. And I, she knew I didn't have the money to pay for a teacher training, so she basically did a pilot training program with me um, for free, and my return was to teach for her for free for a year. And so it was a two-year process, and I it was one of the best decisions I ever made. Knowing you and, and kind of the rest of the story and piecing this together, you did not ever take a few months, a year to just like stop, like, and then evaluate what to do next. You, it's, it seems to me you run on instinct. Uh, Or opportunity. Or opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I have to give credit where credit's due in those transitional times. Like if I didn't have cancer, at both of those junctures, I don't know. Uh, I wouldn't have stopped. You're right. I really struggled with that, but that forced me at my hand, um, the cancer diagnosis. So I, I think I would have spun a little bit out of control, but that forced me to stop. I was in, you know, hospital bed or going back and forth from chemo um, and getting sick in between. So you just, you can't keep going so in a morbid way, it grounded you a little bit. <laughs> yes, very much so. Yeah. I think it was it was the screeching of the brakes that I wouldn't have otherwise done. Yeah, and um, an opportunity somehow at each point, pre- you know, presented itself. In '97, it was to train again. In 2000, it was grad school and yoga at the same time. Um, and that's kind of what I just jumped into. I never really had a master plan that worked out. Yeah. So 
if I look back, I don't regret those decisions to, you know, um, train again, even though those, those years become kind of this parenthetical nine years of my life where it was super intense and everything else was on hold because I was unable to focus on one and sustain any relationship or, you know, keep in touch, good touch with my family. Like they just yeah. kind of let me go off the deep end because I didn't come home for Christmas for four years. Yeah. Um, and I don't regret those decisions, but when I look back, I realize like I never had this plan. I'm like, I'm going to train, I'm going to go to two Olympics, whatever happens, happens. And then I'm going to go to grad school and then I'll get married and then I'll have a kid, family. Yeah. It all happened kind of, well, that is done. So here's the next opportunity. I'm going to pursue that. That's done. So once that was all done, I was 40 and had, you know, been dating for less, well, dating Calvin for five years, um, but still like really busy. So not focusing on that relationship Yeah, and realized, no, I do really want a family. And then everything kind of bubbled up of the past. Like, I don't know if your uterine, your uterus is going to handle, you know, seven pounds of something, a living thing. And then, um, we don't even know if your ovaries are productive. Yeah. So then it was that whole thing that I dove into. So, and then somewhere in there, I'm going to come back to that, but somewhere in there, you, you, uh, you were, we talked about this long or, or much earlier, you coached. So you stayed in touch with rowing from 2001. Like I you did. arrived on campus, mm -hmm. you went through cancer treatment, you started grad school, you also coached mm -hmm. at rowing camps. Correct. And then a few years later, when the grad school thing kind of uh, ended for kind of reasons beyond your control, right? In Well, in 2001, when... 9-11 um, happened, then IH started pulling funding from my particular research. So if I wanted to stay in that, I would end up studying a lot of things I didn't really care to become an expert on. Uh, so I shifted my focus to the biomechanics lab, and then a similar thing happened there. They lost the funding for where we were doing, like, the um, the biomechanics of foot load. And anyway, that funding went away as well. At the same time, I was offered a job because B.B. Bryans had come to UW and was looking for a first assistant. And that's what I wanted to do anyway, yeah. I thought, was coach and teach. Yeah. And so... But there was I, an opportunity at your feet. Yeah. So yeah. I shifted my focus gladly um, at the time. And every once in a while, I do regret not finishing that degree um, because once I was done coaching, I think that would have served me well to... Um, find the next big thing, but I couldn't have done both of them. Again, once again, I had to be singularly focused yeah. and the coaching was a full-time plus job. And so that took my focus off and it gave me a little bit of that, um, that high again. So I met you in um, 2012, lucky me. And uh, I came here to go to graduate school, um, which I uh, I had no idea what I was I was really doing either. I left coaching um, at Princeton to go to grad school here, but ultimately to return to coaching. 
um, and I uh, got the grad assistantship at Wisconsin. So I got to meet you. The first day I met you, you were wearing cutoff shorts and a boot, um, like an immobilizing boot, and you were in a bowel mood. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God. (laughs) And um, I Googled you, and I was like, oh, holy shit, this is cool. Um, And so I've been very... she's a bitch. (laughs) No, 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 no. Um, But I've gotten to know you now over the last six and a half years, um, and become kind of obsessed with your story and, uh, been fortunate enough to become close with you and kind of get to know this story, um, and witness your transition kind of out of the rowing world, almost like you left it. And I want you to tell me, you know, in your own words, this, but from where I'm sitting, you left the rowing world so that you could finally have the family you wanted. Like that's like you you had this like painful fucking ride. And that's just and you it sounds like you liked it. Um, <laughs> and it was really it just incredible, but like you just work, 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 work. That's all it was. Work and then adversity and then more work and then adversity. And it's just this like thing and you call them opportunities. And I think that's such a beautiful way to look back on your life. And I, I, and I agree with you, but there are many ways, you know, to talk about multiple cancer diagnoses and falling short of a goal and um, working in a basement and accruing debt. There's so many different ways to look at this. And when I met you, you were uh, starting to pursue the next chapter, I think, of a of, of purely, like, um, a very personal one that had no external reward, really, either. You you wanted to have, like, you'd, you'd been married to Calvin for a while, and you'd been working really hard, but um, I guess your next adventure was having a child, right? Right. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because this is also a pretty wild story. <laughs> So we got married um, in 2008, the same year that I took on the coaching job. And I had this kind of romantic idea of what marriage was and also a romantic idea of what the coaching job was. And neither one was really romantic at all. The coaching job was great. Uh, I loved the the coaching of the athletes. I, I loved that um, camaraderie that I watched them build. And I loved watching them build in confidence as they saw goals get kind of checked off and move on that path that I talked about before, like feeling the inertia of, I didn't know if that was accessible and I just slayed it. Now what's next? Bring it. Let's see. And I loved seeing them do that collectively and then individually as well. And, uh, but the job itself was so much, um, traveling for both the spring and the fall and recruiting. And then even the summertime with camps, like it was just Calvin and I rarely saw each other if for a full day on the weekend. Um, and I was up at four to walk the dog and get to campus for the first morning practice. And I'd be home after six and it in the evening, in the evening. Yes. <laughs> and um, it, it wasn't, I did love the work but it wasn't conducive to 
you know, building our marriage and, um, and also not to building a family. Cause you just, you got to have some presence there together <laughs> to have the desire to bring another life into that. And so I really struggled with trying to pull back the time that I spent at the boathouse and it just, it couldn't happen. I just wasn't able to do it. And that was the year I met you that last year yeah. um, where finally I just said, I, I've probably waited too long to make this decision, but I need to um, do this for myself. In the meantime, we had been trying to get pregnant um, for a good, well, since we, since we got married really. So this is now four years of trying to get pregnant. And in the, in that process, I could get pregnant but um, I would have a miscarriage or there would be complication where I would have to um, have a DNC after a late miscarriage, like a second trimester miscarriage. So that happened nine times between 2008 and 2014. Just devastating. 2013, excuse me. And... Um, several of those, over half of them were in the second trimester. So over 12 weeks. So traditionally you can share the good news after 12 weeks. Yeah. And I did that one time and, um, lost the baby, I think two weeks later. So once that started, ha once that happened four or five times that deep in the second trimester, I stopped telling people, um, and I started just panicking, um, once I found out I was pregnant because it's not only, you know, thinking that you might lose the baby, but the complications that came, you know, just the pain, not just emotional, but physical pain um, of going through that. Uh, but I didn't, the doctors kept telling me like, you can get pregnant. We didn't even think you'd be able to get pregnant. So your left ovary is fine. Um, it may be that your uterus isn't able to stretch as much because it just kind of, um, because of all the scar tissue from the radiation, that is that could be why. So they tried an ablation. They tried all these different techniques to see. And from everything that, all the tests, I should have been able to carry a child to full term. So Calvin and I were like, well, let's just keep trying. And um, it's it wasn't dangerous to my health, they didn't think, to continue to try. So um, after nine miscarriages, we decided, um, and the last one was 16 weeks and that was the latest it had happened. Um, and the most painful. And I said, I can't do it again. I just, I don't want to lose another one. This is too hard. It's not worth it. We can, there's plenty of children that need a good family so we can adopt. And so, um, we weren't trying anymore. And you've, I'm sure heard plenty of stories that once you give up on the need and the curling your fingers around it and gripping so hard, um, then it comes more easily like many things. <laughs> like your second Olympics. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And, you know, through this time I was practicing yoga, but not really the way you're supposed to practice yoga. I practice yoga like an athlete does a workout. <laughs> yeah. So um, I think I, looking back, all these things point to that lesson of wanting something so badly that you're actually keeping it from happening. Um, but we got pregnant uh, in March of 2014 and stayed pregnant until Revel was born. 
December. <laughs> That's a happy cry. <laughs> she was fine, and um, she's a miracle. And she's my life. And Calvin and I are so lucky to... I mean, we won the lottery with her. She's, um, any child is going to be a, a miracle. But what we went through, and I do believe that every time I lost a child in my womb, they left their willpower in my womb. And so when she came out, she carried nine other willpowers with her. And she's a very strong-willed child, very spirited. And I love that about her. And so now it's a matter of managing and steering that without breaking it so that um, she too can do whatever she wants to do, whatever she decides to do. We were talking last night about how lucky, like as I move forward thinking about this, how lucky I feel to see people like you who have had so many life experiences, so many life experiences, parent and what a gift it is to actually take all of that and use it as a foundation for bringing someone else up. It's such a gift. It is. I, I, I think about um, my 20s and what kind of parent I would have been. And this is me. I'm not speaking to the, just the general age of 20, but me in my 20s was still way too agenda-driven, and I would not have been as patient, as um, engaged with Rev if I'd had a kid when I was 20. I had too many things to do and too many um, things, boxes to check. Same thing in my 30s even, and so when we got pregnant, I was 47, and... Is that true? Uh, no, sorry. You were like 44, I thought. I was 46. Really? No. Yeah. How old are you now? 50. Really? Am I? What's the year? Sorry. It's 2018. Edit this out. <laughs> so when I got pregnant with, hold on, let me. Wait, you're that. 50? I thought next birthday was 50. I am next birthday. Yes. Right. I have to go to the next one. Jesus Christ. Okay. Hold on. Stop. 40. She was born in 14. So I was 45. Okay. Okay. Glad we ironed that out. So <laughs> when we got pregnant, I was 45 and um, I knew I you know, was active and was in good shape other than, you know, the whole reproductive cancer mess. Right. And um, I wasn't concerned about being an older mom. You know, I, I knew that it was going to serve me well to have had, like, checked all the boxes I wanted to check and this was something I wanted. So I was going to be in a good place to be a mom. What I didn't anticipate was how exhausting it would be to be going through perimenopause and have a toddler. (laughs) Um, And just that stage of life, like I knew I would be able to keep up with her and, you know, I'm mobile and active, but to go through the changes of like not sleeping well and still having a very active and strong willed child to engage with during the day a battle of wills sometimes, and um, someone that's very energetic, that I, I'm still trying to navigate that path. But I do believe that the later pregnancy and motherhood for me 
was the best route. Yeah. It's a beautiful thing to watch. Because of all those experiences, like, I don't feel like I need to be doing something first thing in the morning when she wants to come up and do a puzzle on the table. Yeah. And we can do that without me hurrying her along so that we can go to the next thing. Yeah. So what's next? For right now, um, for right now, I would like to just focus on her until she goes to school because I, I see her little mind like exploding with curiosity and, um, just, uh, questions and um, development in her brain that blow me away. And I'm sure that's normal, but it's so awesome to be able to watch it every day and to engage in it, to be part of it and to steer it. And um, I don't want to miss that Yeah, because I know as soon as she goes to school, the time is just going to like speeding up like a steam train and I don't, want to miss that. So I want to be here for that. And I really enjoy the yoga teaching and yoga teacher training and, um, have in the past also been a strength and conditioning coach. And I liked that, um, unpacking that part as well for people. So I'd like to return to that. I don't know in what capacity and what that looks like, whether it's, um, my own studio or teaching um, at other studios and traveling to teach their teachers. But it's something to do with teaching uh, and always being able to keep Revel as kind of the center, the epicenter, so I can be present for her adventures. Uh, I have one final question for you um, that we're asking everyone, and you have to keep answering it for a minute. Okay. And it starts with, if you really knew me. If you knew, really knew me, um, you would picture me in my pajamas right now. If you really knew me, you would know I am a total math geek. If you really knew me, you know I like listening to everything from Leonard Skinner to Eminem to... Um, uh, Whiskey Myers, <laughs> um, Holland Oats, <laughs> you know, September, Earth, Wind, and Fire. Like those are some of my songs. If you really knew me, you would probably think initially. If you just met me, you would think I was either conceited or shy or stuck up. Because many people have told me that. But if you really knew me, um, I'm not that. I am usually rather reticent to bring up my Olympic stuff because I'd rather people know me for the other 40 years of my life. So, wow. That story is just so unexpected and damn inspirational. Yeah, she was put through the ringer, but she's the last person to ever victimize herself. 
It's also very cool that she's had so many years to reflect on that whole experience, and her perspective on all of it is just so level-headed. Yeah, I mean, it's not like Karen had a yellow brick road to join the Olympic team. She started her Olympic dream at the end of college and then worked and clawed her way onto the U.S. rowing national team despite the coaches and fucking cancer trying to take her down. And then her perspective after all of it. I mean, talk about having to check your priorities. When instead of being glum about the post-Olympic blues, you have to deal with chemotherapy and beating cancer. It's a story unlike any other I've ever heard. And I have been so lucky to do a lot of workouts with her in the past seven years. And there is literally nothing that woman can't or won't do to be fast and strong. So you can't really find Karen on social media. She's just not that into it. But if you're ever in Madison, Wisconsin, you definitely need to go to one of her yoga classes. If you dug this episode as much as we did, please jump onto Apple Podcasts and review and comment on our episode. And a huge thank you to our podcast editor, Corey Shruppel, who makes these episodes sound great and coherent. He's amazing. And thank you for listening. Just to remind you, this is our second to last episode of the Humbled Podcast. So stay tuned for our final episode next week. Bye. Bye.